may be seated. If you have your Bibles with you, we want you to open up. We're ready for Mark chapter 3 today. And verse number 7 is where we're going to begin. If you don't have a Bible, we'd like for you to follow along with us in the Bible. I use the New King James Version. We have some on the back table if you want to borrow one. Hey, one of the things I want to just just stress to you guys today, and it kind of came out in a message a couple weeks ago in this first section of Mark, but one of the, the ideas is that we have this, this God of the Old Testament, and, and somewhere we, we have this God of the New Testament. And, and the Old Testament God related to his people through the law, and the New Testament God relates to his people through grace. And, and while that is true, the system that, that God set up in the Old Testament was a system of law. And he gave the law of Moses, and Jesus came, and Jesus said, I fulfill the law, not that the law was bad or that it was wrong or that I need to fix it. He said, it's over, I fulfill it. And, and, and the, the purpose of the law was to point, it was an index finger that would point us to Jesus and, and help us to realize that we needed a Savior and we couldn't please God in our strength, in our flesh, in our works, that, that it required Jesus to come and fulfill. And so we have this God and this, this idea of grace in the New Testament. And, and as you read it, you see this God of, of law in the Old Testament. And while those two principles themselves are true, the reality is, is that God has been from the beginning after your heart. And God is, that's what God is concerned with. And we can go through, and I just read you a scripture out of Deuteronomy. The one that's the, the, the Shema of Israel. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The great Shema to this day in Israel. And, and in that scripture, what does God say? And what is he saying to the people? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your soul. And then they come to Jesus in the New Testament. And they say, what, what is the greatest commandment for us, us that are under grace to believe and to follow? And Jesus says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Jesus said, I am, the t I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the, the, there's not two gods. It's not a, and God didn't change his heart or his mind or his, his, his tactics even from the Old Testament to the New Testament. God has always wanted your heart. That's what God wants. That's, that's how God has called us and wired us and, and the very way that God created us. God says, the Bible says that God created you for his good pleasure. Some people that don't believe in God, they, they, they have a problem with that. Like that, that, that God's like greedy or something, and he created you for his pleasure. But I'm sorry, like it or not, you've got to live with it. It's not going to change, but God created you for his good pleasure. And then he sent his son to die in your place and redeem you because he's a holy God. And he doesn't allow sin and, and death and, and, and those things in heaven. And so in order to bring you into this place and into fellowship and relationship with him he sent his son but but god's heart has always been from the beginning from genesis in the garden what do you see god doing in the in the garden with adam and eve the first people he created did, did god show up in the garden of eden okay i got adam and eve now i got to get the rules put in quick right i got to go and i got to tell them how much they got to tithe i got to tell them what, which church to go to and when how often to pray and pass out tracts and read the bible and you know, what the rules are and, and how we can, you know, how they can please me and, and what's the, the rules for making this relationship work. No, you don't see any rules in the Garden of Eden. There was a couple, right? Don't eat of the forbidden fruit. Don't eat of this one tree. Maybe eat of any, any of the, 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 the trees in the Garden of Eden except for this one, the knowledge of good and evil. And then what do you see? God shows up and he walks with him in the cool of the night. God probably had a gangster stroll, huh? 
But he walked with them. He walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And then what do you see? You see him with this guy, Enoch. And the same testimony, right? The Bible says Enoch walked with God and he was not because God took him. And it's as if these two guys in the, in, in, in the early days, that God just came down and fellowshiped and spent time with them. And Enoch and God just began to grow, grow closer and closer together to the point where God just took him to heaven to continue and complete that relationship in Enoch's life. And so, so God, God doesn't, he, he, that's always been his heart. From, from beginning to end. So as we pick up in the Gospel of Mark in chapter um, 3 and verse 7, we're, we're following Jesus, and, and as is the style of Mark, who's one of the youngest authors in the New Testament, he's, he's kind of fast-paced. He doesn't give us any genealogy. He doesn't give us any background. We hear nothing about the first 30 years of Jesus' life. Mark starts out that he was baptized. He went here. He did this, and then he just go, go, go. It's the shortest gospel probably something that was appealing to the young people and if you know a teenager wrote a gospel today this might be the style which they wrote in you know in between text messages and tweets you know they just all what happened it's just jesus did this he did this he did this there's not a lot of explanation there's not a lot of background it's just the 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 events of jesus's life so it says in verse number seven chapter three it says but jesus withdrew from his disciples he withdrew with his disciples to the sea. So, I, you know, ha, had I advertised this week and had I told the, 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 uh, you guys in our community and our town, man, come to church on Sunday, I am going to give you the key to Christianity. Maybe, maybe would have came, like you would have came with this, this expectation for these, you know, this, these mind-blowing, life-altering revelation that I was going to give you what the key to Christianity was. But guess what? I'm going to give it to you anyways. And we, we see it here in Jesus' life. And the key to Christianity is devotion. It's relationship. It's what Jesus taught, and it's what Jesus did so often with the disciples. He withdrew himself, and he spent time with them. The key to Christianity is, is spending time with Jesus. And that's why I told you guys, you're here in church for, for an hour and a half this week. And you have the rest of your week to go. And this is a time to retreat. It's a time to spend time with Jesus. It's a time to hear about Jesus, grow in Jesus. But, but it's a short time of your week. You want to grow in your relationship and in your walk and in the power of God to change your life and to, to affect the environment around you and change other people's lives. The key to Christianity is in devotion. It's in withdrawing yourself as Jesus did. You know, Jesus was busy. We, we saw the last week. We're going to see here in the, in the end of this little section, they don't have time to eat. It says they have no time for bread because they're just busy, busy, busy. In the first chapter, a couple weeks ago, we went through it. It started, Jesus was in the synagogue on the morning, early teaching. He left the synagogue. They went to some people's house where they, in Peter's house, where they gathered for lunch, and he ministered to them. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. Sunday night, they went back for church. They had a big Sunday night service. A ton of people showed up, and Jesus healed them and ministered to them late into the night. It says he got up early the next morning and, and, and sought the Lord. And, and, and this this you know, life of Jesus through these sections, it's, it's go, 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 it's busy. People are coming, things are doing. But one thing that Jesus always had time for, whether he was alone, which he often did, or whether he brought some people with him and spent some personal time, Jesus often would withdraw and spend alone time, quiet time with the Lord. And that's the key to Christianity. You know, again, if you guys came in today, maybe I was standing at the back, and I, and I asked you guys as you came in this morning, what, what is Christianity? What would you guys say? I mean, 
we yeah we get we get some answers. I probably get some good answers. I probably get a lot of a lot of a lot of answers. But I bet you the number one answer I'd get probably wouldn't be that Christianity is a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what it is. It's a relationship with a good good Father. My new favorite song. Been asking them to do that song for a while. They debuted it today, so we had a good lineup because um, uh, the Power song. That was my old favorite song before Good Good Father came out, so I got all my favorites today. And the one we did in the middle, I think that's going to be my new favorite song after I, after, that's Lydia's favorite song, after, after Good Good Father wears off. But we, we have a Good Good Father. We have a creator of the heavens and the earth who loves us and who wants relationship with us. And that, that's what it is. Our devotion, our works, our, it, it's born, it's built out of this relationship. You know, you know, and we, we have to work and foster that relationship. My wife and I, we've been married for 18 years, two, three of those happy years. Um, and we, we live in the same house, so relationally, we, we live in the same house. We, we cross each other, we sleep in the same bedroom, we, we, we take a shower in the same shower. Not at the same time, that's not what I was saying. That's not what I was saying. We, we eat at the same dinner table. We, we constantly, you know, we're, we're, we're relationally, we're, we're in the same atmosphere. But if that's all it was, used the same bathroom, slept in the same bedroom, walked down the same hall, used the same washer and dryer. And so, you know, in your life and in my life, we, we as Christians, we, we have that idea, that relationship with God. Like, we're Christian people, so it's what we do. It's like we live in this house where God is and, you know, through our day. But if, if my relationship with my wife is just sleeping in the same bedroom and, and, and eating out of the same fridge, there's, there's no substance in that, right? So what, what builds and what makes and what, what quantifies and qualifies and what deepens my relationship with my wife is the, is the alone, the personal time that I spend with her. We, we, we date, we go out, we talk, we, we, we watch TV together, we, we talk, we, we, we spend time together and we develop a relationship. We, we tell each other things that we like and don't like. We share dreams and visions with each other. We share things that, that, that we want to do. And, and we share things about each other that we like and don't like. And that, you know, things that, that happen. When I, when I go to the kitchen to, to make myself a cup of coffee, I better, not, I better come back with two cups of coffee, right? If, if my wife is there. And when I make something to, to eat, I don't make it for myself. We, we share in that. We, we, we build relationally. We date. We, we spend time apart from all of that stuff where we, we talk and we, we spend time together. That is what qualifies and makes the, the strength of our relationship. You know, and for you smart husbands, you're still dating your wives. You're still, you're still taking them out and treating them like you did when you were courting them. And there's still those times where you, you, you're making them feel special and number one and, and important in your life. And you're doing those things all the time. And so... That, that is, is and, and you know what? It says in Ephesians, what does it say in Ephesians chapter 5? It says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ in the church. And so, so God is telling us that these, these relationships that he gives us, a husband and wife, where two people literally become one flesh, the only relationship that, that, that two people literally, physically, spiritually become one flesh, a husband and a wife. But God says, that's a picture. That's a model of a relationship that I want to have with you. And, and then he gives us other relationships, and he tells us in the word that, that, that a father and a son is a, is a model. It's a picture of a, of a relationship that God desires for you and I. 
And so all of these things, like you, 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 you're not going to be able to, you're not going to have an excuse that you missed it. God has done so much in so, so many ways. And in the areas of relationships, he's given you children, he's given you brothers and sisters and co-workers, and he's given you a spouse and, a, and, and relationships that are in a father. And, 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 and whether your father has, you've had a good or a bad relationship with your earthly father, you have an earthly father or you're not sitting where you're sitting. But it, it's a picture, uh, it's, a, it's a picture of a relationship that God wants to have with us. And, and in order for us, you guys, as Christians, to do that, we, we, we have to withdraw. We have to separate ourselves and spend time, intimate time with God. We recommend, you know, as we get into 2016, last year we put the challenge out. This year we haven't done it officially. I will right now. But we want you guys to read the Bible every day. Read the Bible and pray every day. There's some Bible reading plans that you can get on your phone. There's apps for that. There's, there's actually one-year Bibles. You can buy the Bible if you'd like to do it that way. And it's laid out by every day of the year. It, it's not a check. Okay, I read it today. Check. Brownie point button. Check, 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 check. Not the idea. It's not, it's not how it works. You're not going to get any credit that way for it. But as you read the Bible every day, and you take that time to pull yourself away and withdraw, you, you're going to grow in your relationship with Christ. And so we want you to read your Bible every day. So, so find a plan. Find a Bible reading plan. They're all over the place. There's, you can get them on Amazon if you just want the hard copy of the book. Make one up yourself. Be in the Word every day. Sp take some time to withdraw and build that relationship. And then the other one was the challenge was the 30-day Christian music-only challenge. Maybe somebody in here this morning wants to take it. You can start today. It started January 1st. It goes through the month of January. Start it today and go into February and spend 30 days of your life listening to only Christian music and just see if it doesn't affect and change your life. You have, here in Tooele, we have a great opportunity. We have three different Christian radio stations, more than we had back home. We have Air One, K-Love, and CSN, two for music. One is more of a just Bible teaching talk show type of uh, 88.5 um, channel two Christian music stations. You get, I got CDs back there you can buy. We got the JS uh, Live CD, which is excellent worship CD, their Christmas CD. Um, tons of stuff out there. You guys can make it 30 days. So that's a challenge you guys can take with you this week. So let, let's go on. It says in verse 14, it says, and then he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might set, send them out to preach. I'm sorry. We skipped the whole section. That, that's next. We're going to get there. I keep talking like this. We're going to have to skip sections to get through. And, Jeru and Jerusalem, Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, and great multitude where they were heard, how many things he was doing came to him. So he told the disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he healed many. So that as many as that affliction passed about him to touch him, and the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. I always um, question that, like as I read through that. Why, why would Jesus tell these not to make him known? We read in the last chapter where Jesus heals the guy, and he says, Don't tell nobody. But I think there was a, a practical ability of Jesus to move freely and to... Um, to minister and to do the things that he needed early in his ministry that, you know, like it says already, there was just such a, a crowd that thronged around him, he couldn't move. In the, last, in the last chapter, they're in that house, and there's so many people in the house, there's no more to come in. They're ripping holes in the roof to get a guy to come in the house. 
But here he's speaking specifically to demons, and the demons recognize him immediately. They know who he is. They, they, they've lived on, on both sides of, of, I don't even know what you call it, eternity, on, on the, the, the physical and the spiritual realm. They travel back and forth. They know who Jesus is. They recognize him as the Son of God. And he, he warns them not to tell anybody and to, um, that they should not make him known. And it says in verse 13, And he went up on the mountain and called those to him he himself wanted, and they came to him. I have underlined in verse 13, he himself wanted. Jesus, you know who Jesus called? Jesus called who he wanted to call. And that's what it says. I underlined it like, oh, sorry, you know, sorry for those he didn't call, you know. But he, he called those he wanted. And I, I don't know how else to justify that or explain it other than to say, God, you know, the Bible says that, that you know, if, if two, two battles or if there's a war and two armies are fighting, which army wins? The one God wants to win. That's the one that wins. You know, who did God call? He called the people he wanted to call. And so, you know, but what's interesting about the, the 12 specifically here that, that, that he wanted to call, Gail Irwin always tells a joke about the, because it doesn't say here, but Jesus is about to mention the 12 disciples that he called. And, and, and it says in another gospel that, that Jesus prayed all night. He withdrew himself again, as was his custom. He, was all, he withdrew himself to pray, and he prayed all night. And then the next day he went out and he called these 12 guys. And he says either Jesus blew the prayer or that's what he prayed for. And, and you look at these, these 12 men that Jesus brought together. And just, just the idea of bringing them together first was, was going to be such a task. I mean, he brought, he brought, you know, everyday people. And, you know, people today in our society today that might be a framer or a, a construction guy, the fisherman, the plumber. He, he brought together um, the, tax, the tax collector or tax preparer and... He brought together Republicans and Democrats, and, you know, he, one of the guys he called was a zealot, and a, and, a, and a religious or a Jewish zealot was somebody who was, you know, just a very nationalist person for the Jews and resented the fact and was very um, demonstrative and, and, and very um, out, uh, outgoing on the fact that, that the Roman government had come in and were, was overthrowing the people, and they served the Rome, and Rome had taken the right of um, capital punishment away from the Jews, and they were very indignant about it. And, and, and if the worst thing you could be for a zealot in the eyes and the mind of a zealot, a Jewish zealot, who was, who was for the, the Jewish nation, was somebody who was a Jew that worked for the Romans, which Matthew was a tax collector. And Jesus was able to bring these guys together. You know, Jesus didn't go to Harvard and, and, and wait for the, the graduation line, the guys to come off the stage of the graduation and, and pick 12 Harvard grads and go to MIT and find the 12 most qualified, you know, smart guys in the world. He picked 12 everyday people just like you and me, 12 people out of this room that were different. And he brought them together in Jesus' name. These two guys that would have hated each other and, and, and learned to love each other. And, and, and Jesus does change that, right? When I was in high school, there was a kid that, his name was David, and uh, we were arch enemies, and we fist fought three different times, and it was, it was serious, like we, I'd, I'd be walking, and I'd see him in the mall one day, and I'm walking down the mall, and I see David like 100 yards in front of me, he's walking towards me, and I'm like, we're not going to say nothing, when we get close enough, we're going to drop whatever's in our hands, and we're going to start punching each other, that's just the relationship that we have, and I'm at Harvest, I'm at Harvest Crusade, born again, and I'm sitting in this chair, way up in the nosebleeds in the Harvest Crusade in Anaheim. 
And I hear, Chris, Chris. And I look down, and there's David. And he's looking up at me. He's pointing at me. And he's like, when did you get saved? <laughs> I said, about a year ago. And he said, me too. <laughs> I went down and gave Dave a hug. You know, like Jesus, right? That's only Jesus. Jesus can, can, can do something that's amazing and bring people together. And Jesus calls these 12 guys. This is what he prayed for. And he called who he wanted to call. And he brought these 12 guys together. And it says, you know, the interesting thing is that in this list, we get this list of the 12 disciples four different times. Every time you get the list, Peter's mentioned first. Judas is mentioned last. And it says in verse number 14, Then he appointed 12 that they might be with him, and that he might be with, with, with him, and that he might send them out to preach. So again, what, what, what was Jesus' call on these 12 guys? So he said, hey guys, check it out. We got some rules that people need to follow if they want to relate to me, if they want to get this whole Christian thing right, if they want to go to heaven. I want you to go out and, and, and start teaching and, and putting these rules out and telling everybody what, what, what the, the guidelines are. That's not what he did. He sent them out to preach. He sent them out to preach what? To preach the gospel, to preach the word. And, and this is something that we see over and over. You know, Pastor Joe, when he was here last week, he just shared in his ministry again, a, a seasoned pastor who's been pastoring for 40 years and just the fruit of teaching the Bible systematically. When, it, when I first moved here to Tooele, you know, I, I, I share this with you guys often, but, you know, I, 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 I was Calvary my whole life. Saved in a Calvary Chapel, baptized in a Calvary Chapel, married in Calvary Chapel. I, I went to Calvary Chapel Bible College, and then I got hired and served at, at Calvary Chapel for most of my adult life. Left to start a Calvary Chapel, and, and I thought when I left, I thought when I said, God, what, you know, I, I know there's a ton of cool stuff out there, and I'm watching, you know, to this day, pastors that I really love and enjoy, Francis Chan and Matt Chandler, and a um, ton of guys, you know, of what's going on in the Pacific Northwest. God was pouring out His Spirit upon the people up there, and it was all apart from Calvary Chapel, and um, you know, and, and really, I just understood something. That it's, it's not about Calvary Chapel. It, it, it's about a move of God's Spirit. And that's, that's how Calvary Chapel started. It started as a move of God's Spirit. And, and, and Chuck was radical of his day. And I don't want to be here now 40 years later into the movement, the Calvary Chapel movement, and, and look at other people that are radical because they're doing it different than we are and, and label them. You know, and so I started looking into it and seeing what was happening and what God was doing. And I just wanted to come here with something that was fresh. And so I just sought the Lord. And, and for me and for our church and for what God's called me to do personally is to stay the course. And that's what God's saying. Stay the course. Yeah, I'm doing some stuff in other places that may be different, but for you, stay the course. Stay with the chapter by chapter. Teach the, ver the Bible systematically. And Pastor Joe shared with us last week just some of the fruit that, that he's seen. You know, one of the things he shared is that, you know, when you teach the Word and, and you, you, you keep it in the Word of God and you teach it systematically and you cover large sections of the Word of God as opposed to taking some topics out here and there. And, you know, this week we're going to talk about lust and we're going to go through and then next week we're going to talk about uh, greed or temptation or blessing and we're going to take these topics and we're just going to, you know, you'll go long periods of time you'll never teach the Word of God. You'll teach large sections of the Word you'll never teach. But what happens when you teach the word systematically and you just give the people God's word on a regular basis and a diet of steak and the word of God, he said the, the, their counseling is way, you know, their counseling load compared to other places is way down because it's, it's happening in the teaching. It's happening through the word of God. And then when you're encouraging people to, to be in the word for themselves and to read the word and have a steady diet of the word, have a reading plan and, and, and grow through reading and, and knowing the word for yourself, that it, it does, it changes lives. It really does. It, 
and fruitful. And so that's what the call of Jesus was. And you see it all the way through. And here it is. He raises up these 12 guys and he sends them out for the purpose to preach. And then in verse 15, it says, and to have power to heal sickness and to cast out demons. And Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, who he gave the name Boanerges, that is sons of thunder. And so this, the Boanerges, the brothers, was a, a nickname that Jesus gave these two guys, John and James, because jo John and James, they went into this certain town to preach the gospel and share. And, and the people didn't receive Jesus or his ministry, and it was very unsuccessful there. And, and so when they left, J James and John were like, you know, forget those guys, Jesus. Let's, let's do like you did in Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's call down fire and heaven and turn that whole town into a bunch of crispy critters. Forget them. And this is their, their heart was serious. It was John and James. That's what they wanted to do. And so Jesus nicknamed them Sons of Thunder in jest and kind of, you know, teasing them a little bit. But you look at the, the, how lives are changed by those that Jesus calls and how people who, who separate themselves and spend time with Jesus. And, and, and John, one of these Sons of Thunder, he wrote five books in the New Testament. He writes the Gospel of John. He writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he writes the book of Revelation on the Isle of Patmos at the end of his life. And to this day, John is called the apostle of love. And you read 1 John, 2 John. We're going to go there next when we get through with Mark. And, and you think, like, this guy's like a broken record. Like, does he not know anything else? Like, he keeps just telling us, love one another. And you, read, you turn the page, and it's like, hey, uh, love one another, love one another. Like, like, you turn the page, like, oh, what else does he want to tell me? Oh, love one another, love one another. And you're like, but that was his life. That was his heart. That was his ministry. That was his call of God through, through 1 and 2 and 3 John and his epistles. It's all about love, 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 love. And this same guy who literally wanted just to murder a bunch of people because they didn't receive Jesus it is now the apostle of love as, as he spends time with Jesus and Jesus changes and transforms his life. And, and so then he goes on and he says, he tells us the rest of them. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew was the tax collector. We talked about a couple of these guys. Thomas, doubting Thomas. James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, and Simon the Canaanite, and then last, Judas Iscariot, who was also betrayed him, and they went into a house. And then in verse 20, it says, Then the multitude came together again, so they could not so much as eat bread. There, there were so many people and so much time and so much they were doing, they didn't have time to eat bread. There was no place to eat bread. There was no room to eat bread. And, and they were busy, busy, busy. And it says, But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him and said, he is out of his mind. Remember that. This is his own people, and this is what they're saying about him. He's out of his mind. And remember, this is early in his ministries. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, he has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of demons he cast out demons. So he called them to himself and said to, the par said to them in a parable, How can Satan cast out Satan? And so here's this group of scribes, and they, they don't necessarily say it to him, but he perceives it, and and he goes and he speaks to them. And what's interesting is that Jesus chooses here to speak to these people in parables. And, and he's casting out demons. And they come and they, they, they say, you cast out demons by, by Beelzebub, which is a, a, a demon itself, the father of demons. And, and, and so, and Jesus could have just said, I, I'm the king of kings and lord of lords. I'm the creator of the heaven and the earth. And, you know, demons bow down to me and have authority over sin and death. But rather than do that, he, he uses a common sense argument and, and he just tells them that basically what you're saying makes no sense. 
How, and then he, he explains it in verse 24. He says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a, divide, and if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. So if, if you if you want to go into um, Hercules or the rock or somebody uh, who's, who's a John Cena, you want to go into John Cena's house and steal his VCR. I suggest that you don't do it while he's standing in the living room next to you. OK, you, you might want to tie him up and put him in the bedroom first before you start stealing his stuff, because it just doesn't make sense. And so Jesus uses this this common sense um, parable. And here's the issue, you guys. They, they, they couldn't believe this stuff. And that's basically what Jesus is telling. This stuff doesn't make sense. People that tell you today that they're atheists, there's no such thing. God, God's created in your heart the knowledge of God. You have to suppress and believe a lie, somebody who doesn't believe in, you know, certain things. That the reality is, they have to believe a lie. They have to work themselves up. And the, and the real issue, when you rewind it, is a heart issue. And that's what it is with these, these Pharisees. Their hearts were so hardened that they willingly believe a lie, as it says in Romans, and, and that, that they're, they're, they're making this up. And Jesus realizing that he's dealing with not people who just are, are confused, who have doubt. Jesus has compassion on your confusion. If there's an issue that you're just seriously confused about, bring it to him. If you bring it to him in sincerity and respect, he's not mad at you. He'll deal with it. He'll help you through it. He'll walk you through it. He'll, he'll love you through it and, and, and give you explanation and bring you to places in the word and your devotions. And you'll, you'll one day you'll go, okay, I understand now. Thank you. But that's not what was happening here. These guys had heart issues. They had hard hearts. And that's why this next section, it ties all into it because Jesus is dealing with the hardness of their hearts. You know, you never argue anybody into the kingdom of God. I'm just going to tell you that. You won't do it. Don't waste your time. Jesus said regarding this, don't cast your pearls before swine. A pearl is the word of God, and a swine is somebody who, who just is not going to receive it and wants to argue. And, and you're not going to argue with them because it's an issue of the heart. And Jesus perceiving this, he says in verse 28, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the Son of Men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit has has forgiveness but is subject to eternal condemnation because they said he has an unclean spirit and so here he's saying to these guys because you have and been willing to to take the works of jesus the healing the casting out demons the loving the training the discipling and, and you want to ascribe those to works of demons you have a hardness of heart that is rare and then jesus brings up this section that of the unpardonable sin and so this is a term you'll hear in Christianity, the, the, the unpardonable sin. What, what sin cannot be forgiven? What sin is it? And basically, if you have unforgiven sin or you commit the unpardonable sin, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? We're talking about heaven and hell. If you commit the unpardonable sin, you will spend eternity separated from God in hell in a lake of fire. Well, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth is what Jesus said multiple times. And so he says, for those who, who commit the unpardonable sin. And so obviously the question is always, well, what, what is the unpardonable sin? How do I commit that? When, when am I guilty of, of committing the unpardonable sin? And the unpardonable sin, as Jesus said, is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. 
So, but let, let, let's talk about sins for a minute. You know, let's look at the Pharisees. And, and every time you see Jesus fighting with somebody, who's he fighting with? Who? You guys got to know this stuff, all right? I'm preaching to a wall if you haven't heard me say this yet. He's fighting with the Pharisees over and over, the religious people. That's who he had a hard time with, was religious people constantly. In the last chapter, it says that Jesus got angry. Who was he angry at in the last chapter? He was angry at religious people because they were keeping people from coming to him. I mean, he was angry. But now, now let's look at the Roman soldiers. How about the guys that put a bag on his head and punched him in the face? And then took the bag off his head and all put their hands down and said, Okay, prophesy. Which one, prophet? Which one of these hands is the one that just punched you? And asked him to pick the hand that punched him. Then put the bag back on his hands, and another one punched him. And then when they got bored with that, they took the bag off his head and started spitting loogies on his face and ripping his beard from his face and mocking him. And then they stripped him of his clothes, and they put his hands over his head and tied him to a post, and they whipped his back with a cat of nine tails 39 times and ripped the flesh from his back and his side till and, and, and the punched him in the face and put a crown of thorns upon his head until his face, the Bible says, is unrecognizable as a man. What about those sins? To me, those would be the worst. But what did Jesus say about the Roman soldiers? What did he say about those who put nails in his hands and hung him to a cross, took a spear and jabbed it in his side, who put a cross on his back, after they beat him, made him carry it down a street called the Via Dolorosa from the place where they beat him to the place where they were going to hang him. And when he couldn't take another step in the way to the cross, he collapsed under it and they took the back of their spears and they poked him and they kicked him and they said, get up! And then he fell one more time and they realized that he couldn't take one more step and they, they brought somebody from the crowd. What did Jesus say about the Roman soldiers? He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so when you talk about a, an unpardonable sin, there wouldn't be a worse sin. But yet that's not what Jesus was angry at. Crazy, right? Jesus wasn't mad at the Roman soldiers. He wasn't angry with them. His heart broke for him, and he said, God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But the ones that he got upset with and angry with were the, the religious people who kept people and were indignant. Just had a heart that was just, just wrong. Just had a heart that wasn't soft, that wasn't soft towards God. So I, I want you to understand, we, I, you have to know the, 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 the doctrine of the unpardonable sin. So the unpardonable sin is, is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's a sin that is unforgivable. So as we just illustrated, there, there's not too many physical sins, right, that are, that are unforgivable. So, so first, just go, know this scripture. It's in John chapter 16, in verse number 8. You can turn there if you want, or you can wait, and I'll be back to, Ma to Mark in a minute. In, J in John chapter 16 and verse 8, it says, And when he had come, or excuse me, and when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. When who has come? The Holy Spirit. Jesus is speaking of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit's job is to convict you of sin. Whenever you see the, the Trinity and the, the three parts of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
The Holy Spirit's job in his ministry, every time you see it, he's pointing people to Jesus, and he's bringing people to Jesus. And then when you get to Jesus and you see the life and the ministry of Jesus, what is he always doing? He's always pointing people to the Father and to God, to Father God. And so the Holy Spirit's job is, is to convict us, and so it's the Holy Spirit who comes alongside and brings conviction. Huge difference than condemnation. I'm not going to get into it today. He brings conviction that helps us realize we need a Savior, that we need to be forgiven, brings us closer to Jesus. Condemnation always pushes us away from Jesus and from the devil, but the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and so here's what happens. The Holy Spirit comes because there's a sin in your life. There's something that, as a good, good father, that he wants to communicate to a child who is doing something that is going to cause harm in their life. And a good, good father sends the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit comes alongside you and says, hey, that, that's going to destroy your life. It's wrong. It's sin. It doesn't please Jesus. It doesn't please the Father. You've got to cut it out of your life. And, 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 and when you, you reject that, did I read the scripture yet? It, it says that it's basically, there's another scripture in 1 Timothy, in chapter 4, verse 2, and it says that their conscience were seared as with a hot iron. One of the scariest verses in the Bible for me as a believer, you know, and, and as I've grown in my walk with Christ, this has always been an area that's created some concern because basically what that means is every time the Holy Spirit comes and brings that conviction and, and you, you reject it and you deny it, you pass a hot iron over your heart. And the more you do that, the harder your heart becomes. And, and God is interested in your heart in a soft heart, a pliable heart that, that he can mold and shape into his image. And, and when that heart becomes so hard that you've rejected the Holy Spirit so many times, you've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and, and it's an unpardonable, it's an unforgivable sin. You know, I think that it would be pretty difficult, not impossible, and I think we have examples in the Bible of those that committed the unpardonable sin while they were here in this life. But for the most part, the skinny of the unpardonable sin is for those who die without asking Jesus and having forgiven their sins. Those who die apart from Jesus forgiving them sins. Remember that Clayton Jennings video we watched last week? At the end of it, what does he say? He says, and some of you will go to hell, and not because you're bad people, but because your sins are not forgiven. And I'll tell you what, there'll be a ton of people that will be guilty of a lot, lot less than what those Roman soldiers were guilty of in the flesh, and, and they'll be in hell. And some of those Roman soldiers will be in heaven. And, and, and the issue is the rejection. And the issue is, is whether your sins are forgiven or not. So again, so I can be clear, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit basically is when you die without forgiveness of sins. When you've rejected the work of the Holy Spirit of, of showing you that you need a Savior. And if you die without Jesus, you've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and, and you will face an eternal lake of fire is what the Bible teaches. And so, you know, but I think it's, I, like I said, I think there's very few people that commit it here. We, we have examples in the Bible. I think Judas Iscariot is one who committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit while he was in the flesh. I think the Pharaoh, because the Bible gives us the example of a hardness of heart, a hardness of heart, a hardness of heart. And then God establishes his hard heart at a certain point in Pharaoh's life, which is probably that point of no return. And, and, and so every time, you know, there's the other thing about the human heart. And I, I try to illustrate this with just the most wicked, disgusting, vile act of, of human treachery that I can think of. But I'm not going to do that today. You're just going to get the point. That 
that human men and women, uh, um, just talking about people, humans are capable of some terrible things towards other human beings, right? Without me having to give you some examples. I'll give a quick one. Just, you know, you think of children who are raped and murdered by adults. And what do we all say? We gasp and we say, how in the world could you ever do that to another human being? Could you imagine? I couldn't. If my life depended on it, I couldn't. I couldn't cut or hurt a child. And yet, some guy does it regularly and gets pleasure from it or whatever. How is that possible? You, you, you think of some of the stories in the, that come out of atrocities of war and some of the things that people do to other people. And I'll tell you how it happens. That hot iron goes over your heart once, twice, three times. And enough of a hot iron searing your heart becomes hard. And the heart, as the Bible says, is desperately wicked above all things who can know it. And it becomes very capable of some very terrible, terrible things when you let that you, you let that conviction of the Holy Spirit and you reject that conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life and one more pass of the hot iron, one more pass of the hot iron, one more pass of the hot iron. And that's why I'm always seeking the Lord. And I am, I'm so scared. I'm like, Lord, I don't want my heart to become hard in any area of my life. And, and King David, who understood this and got this, and King David was a guy who had some big sins. But man, when he had a big sin, he immediately ran to this issue of his heart that it wouldn't become hard. And he said, God, search my heart and create in me a new heart, oh God, that I might not sin against you. God, you know, work with this heart. And you read Psalm 51, and David is just in a true um, example of repentance, broken before God. And what is David concerned with? Is that his heart's not going to get hard. Lord, please just don't, don't let my heart get hard. Forgive me. Create in me, if you have to, a new one. God, get rid of that old one. And so it's just such an important area that, that we don't allow our hearts to become hard. And every pass of the iron is dangerous. Every pass of the Holy Spirit in your life, when the Holy Spirit, whose job is to convict you of sin, and every time you reject it, every time you push it away and say, uh, no, that's okay, you, you, you flirt with that danger of. And for some, when they've rejected it enough, you get to the point on this side of eternity where, where God's Holy Spirit stops convicting you of sin, and that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Like I said already, I don't think very many people do that on this side of eternity, but it's possible. I think in the day and age we live in, maybe even more possible than, it, you know, with, with the idea of selling your soul to the devil. I think that's a real deal that, that people, you know, musicians and different people have entered into deals that, that they would probably deem them guilty of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, it's, it's, it's that rejection of Jesus in your life. Amen? All right, so then Jesus goes on. We're almost done. We are, we are going to receive communion today. You guys get a clue. When you came in, the table was set up. So we'll need to leave a few minutes to receive communion. And so it says in verse number 28, not 28, let's go 31. Then his, brothers, then his brothers and his mother came, standing outside. They sent to him, calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them, saying, Who is my mother and my brother? And they looked around him in a circle, and those who sat about him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whomever does the will of God is my brother and my sisters and my mother. And so the, um, 
Remember verse 20? I told you guys to remember it. And they said in verse 20, he's out of his mind. So here's Jesus' mom, the blessed mother Mary, Jesus' brothers. Jesus is coming into all kinds of opposition. He's already creating. He's already made a bunch of people mad. He's already offended a bunch of people. You know, little side note here. Jesus offended some people while he was here. He was not politically correct. Jesus offends, not needlessly, but, but Jesus and his life, and so should yours, and so will mine be offensive at times, not unloving. People, people want to ascribe that to being unloving, that it's, it's okay. And that's not what I'm saying. But it will offend, and Jesus offended. And so his, his family's a little concerned. He, he's just kind of come out, um, and, and he got baptized. You know, he lived the first 30 years of his life as a carpenter's son. Somewhere along his childhood, his, his earthly father, Joseph, because he disappears out of the picture. He's not here. He's got his mom and his brothers are here. And you don't find any more about Joseph. Joseph died somewhere, probably died somewhere in Jesus' childhood. Probably a little bit later in Jesus' childhood because he passed the craft of, of Jesus. And that's why you have a bumper sticker that my boss is a Jewish carpenter. Because Jesus' um, earthly father, Joseph, stepfather, whatever you want to call him, was, um, was a carpenter, and Jesus grew up in that house. And so he, th- I'm sure they always knew. You know when the wise men came? The Bible says that Mary pondered it in her heart. That, that like, but there's still, and the Holy Spirit came to her, right? She was conceived by the Holy Spirit. An angel had already appeared to her. But she was still kind of figuring it all out as she went along life. And so here they come to this point where they're like, a little concern for, for their son. And so they're like, they go to this place where he is, and they're not going to go inside. And they're like, you know, tell Jesus, hey, could you guys go in and tell Jesus his mom and his brothers are outside and have him come out so you know, maybe we can grab him and take him home and give him a bath and let him chill out for a while, put him in an ice, ice bath for a couple of days and, you know, bake him his favorite cake and let him chill out at home for a little bit and, you know, forget all this craziness for a while and these people that want to kill him. And so, so but, the, you know, Jesus can have no neutrality. He, he's going to kind of put them on, you know, kind of front them off here and, and, and give them really no, no credit, no respect as, as, as who they are, as his mom and his, and his brother. And, and, and there's a circle of people that are coming around. As they come in and they say, hey, your, your, your family's outside. They're looking for you. It says that he looks around the circle and makes eye contact with those around the circle in the room. And he said, these are my mothers and brothers. And he said, the ones who do the will of my father, these are my mother and brothers. Now, the, the relationship with his mom where, where was she when Jesus died on the cross? She was right there, right? It was strong. It was well. Jesus told John, the last thing he told his disciples was to take care of his mother. He told her mother, take care of her. And, you know, so the relationship was good. But, you know, because of this, this, this place that he was in with these demons and the power of sin and, and, and life and death and, and that Jesus is making a statement here of who he is. And there could be, as his family wanted to kind of bring him away from this whole scene a little bit, he, he had to be very clear that, no, there be no neutrality. I must be about my father's business. I am the Messiah, the Savior, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And my mother, my brother and sister are those who do the will of the Father. And that's true among our Christian family. That sometimes your, your spiritual relationships and your spiritual bond is, is closer than, than, than your physical relationships with, with, with your family and with those. And, and, you know, at one point, Jesus tells us, you have to leave father and mother and brother for my namesake. And we're like, that's the will of God? But, but not, not in this sense only. 
God has to be 100% first in your life. Jesus just taught that. And if that means a mother, a brother, a sister, anybody who doesn't walk with Christ or know Christ or keep you from Christ, God is first in your life. And as I want to tell you something. As you put God first in your life, he will work those, those human relationships out in the long run. And it may be hard in the time. But I tell you, if you choose God and you choose following God, then, then, that, then God will bless those relationships. I just want to give us a little disclaimer here because, um, you know, we, we knew this girl, Lydia and I know this girl back home, and her husband's a non-believer, and she's a believer, and her husband was in an injury, and it was he was working for, he was electrocuted, and, um, and he was in another state working when it happened, and so she went to this other state to be in the hospital. He was in the hospital for like six months, and she got involved in this church while she was there visiting her husband, who was a non-believer, and the pastor told her, using that scripture, that she was supposed to leave her husband because Jesus said to leave mother, father, and brother, sister for my name's sake. And he's not a Christian, and you need to go find a Christian. And, 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 and gave her counsel through that scripture that she was to leave. I just want to tell you, that's not what it's talking about. It's not what it means. When, when he says, leave mother, father, brother, sister for my name's sake, that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about, you know, in that sense. What he's talking about is seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. But I do want to give you a word of caution with that. God does come first in your life. Before, your, before anything else in your life, God's first. Amen? Let's have the worship team come on up. We're going um, we're gonna, to we're gonna receive communion. Again, I, I see a couple new faces today, so I just want to, um, maybe for the sake of those that are new, as a rule, we try to do communion every first Sunday of the month. Last month, we had a last uh, Sunday being the first Sunday of, of January, we had a guest speaker, and so we held off for a week. Uh, Wednesday nights, we, we receive communion as a family of believers a little more often on Wednesday nights as we just gather to seek the Lord together and in a, in a smaller setting where we're teaching the Word. And, and, and so it's something that we do monthly, and, and we do it in obedience to God's Word. Jesus said, you know, as often as you gather... Do this in remembrance of me. And so the, the, the bread, we're going to receive the bread and cup. And right now we don't pass the communion. I think someday we'll probably pass it to make it a little bit easier. But we're going to have you guys come forward, take a, a, a bread and a cup and go back to your seat. And just spend a song and with a little, you know, it may take a song and a half. And we're just asking for, you know, a song, two songs of your life to, to do what, what we talked about and what Jesus did with his disciples where we withdraw and we spend time with the Lord, and that's our heart in communion. We, you know, there was a church that was that was taking communion, and they were they were doing it in an unworthy manner, and 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 God was cursing the church. There was people that were getting sick, and Paul comes and he says, "You have sick among you because you've you've misrepresented and you've you've abused what Jesus instituted in the Lord's Supper, and that's why you have sick among you." And so, you know, and then and then Paul says that it needs to be a time of self-examination. That it's a time where you look in your own heart. And maybe you find yourself praying that prayer this morning that King David prayed, God, search my heart and see if there be any wickedness in me. And, and a time to allow God to speak to you during communion. And, and Jesus said, and as we know from, from the Gospels, that communion is a time to do this. The main theme is do this in what? Let's say it together. Do this in remembrance of me. And so that's what I'm asking this morning, is that as we take communion, you do this in remembrance of Christ. And remember what? 
Remember the price that he paid for your, for your sins. Remember the, the amazing price that he paid and the deep price. So when Jesus gave communion, he took the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. And so the bread is, it's, it's a, we use it's a matzos. And the bread is, is bread that is, is baked without leaven. Because in the Bible, leaven is a type of sin. And Jesus had no sin. And so communion is taken with unleavened bread. The, the, the bread, before we break it down, has lines in it, which remind us of the stripes that they put in Jesus' across his back. As you get the piece of bread, it has little holes in it, which remind us of the holes that they put in his hands and in his feet and his side. And so we take the bread first because that's the way that Jesus taught it and instituted it. The bread represents his body broken for you. And then we take the cup, and the cup represents the blood of Jesus Christ that was, that was shed for your sins and my sins. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so we receive the cup, and, and we, we, we give thanks, and we do it in remembrance of him. Amen? We'll be up front to pray for you guys. Let's, let's stand together. We'll be up front to pray for you guys. If anybody would like individual prayer, we can go get the lights, Mike. I want to give you guys an opportunity as we pray. And you, as you go back to your seat, you can sit down. You can, you know, stand in your seat, sit down, receive communion. There's a little um, place in the seat back in front of you that you can put your empty cup. And then you can stand when you're done and worship or sit however you like. Just spend a song to seek the Lord and receive communion. I'm going to pray for us as a church for our communion. But I want to give you guys all an opportunity. Let's close our eyes and bow our heads. If there's anybody in here today who who wants to receive Jesus Christ in their, in their heart. If you want to get saved, if you want to ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins and make sure that you, you receive that forgiveness that the Bible promises, I want you just really quickly to raise your hand up so we can pray for you. Is there anybody that wants to receive Jesus? Amen. In the front here? Amen. You can raise it up and put it down. If you want to get your heart and life right with the Lord Jesus this morning. Anybody else? Amen. Praise God. All right, let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, please come into my heart. Forgive me of my sins. Wash me clean in your blood. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Be my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me